It had been 400 years since God had spoken directly to the Israelites. Then, one day, God sent an angel to a girl named Mary, who was engaged to a man named Joseph. The angel told Mary that she would soon become pregnant and give birth to a son named Jesus. God would give him the throne of his ancestor David, and his kingdom would never end. But Mary was a virgin, and this confused her. So the angel told her it would be by God's power that she became pregnant. When Mary's fiance Joseph heard about this, he decided he would quietly end the engagement. But an angel visited Joseph as well, telling him not to be afraid, and that Jesus would save people from their sins. So Joseph and Mary decided to get married. Soon after, they traveled to the town of Bethlehem. Because so many other people were in town, there was no place for them to stay. While they were there, Mary gave birth to her son, wrapped him in cloths, and laid him in the manger. There were shepherds living in the fields nearby. While they were watching their sheep, an angel appeared to them, announcing that a boy had been born in Bethlehem. This boy, said the angel, was the Messiah, the king that the Israelites had been waiting for. So the shepherds left their sheep and raced to Bethlehem, finding Mary and Joseph and Jesus. The shepherds praised God for their new king. During this time, the country of Rome controlled all of Israel. After hearing about Jesus' birth, a group of magicians and astrologers came to Herod, a governor working for the Roman Empire. They claimed that they had seen a star in the sky telling them that the king of the Israelites, now called Jews, had been born. This news really upset Herod. When they arrived in Bethlehem and met Mary, Joseph, and Jesus, they felt great joy. Herod was furious and commanded that all boys in Bethlehem who were two years old and younger be killed. But God had already warned Joseph, who by that time had moved his family to Egypt to hide. Later. After King Herod died, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus moved back to Israel, to a small town named Nazareth. They stayed in Nazareth for years, raising Jesus. When he was 12, they traveled to Jerusalem for a festival. When the festival ended, Joseph and Mary left for home with a large group of people, but Jesus stayed behind without them knowing. When they realized he was missing, they went back to Jerusalem and found Jesus sitting in the temple, listening to the teachers and asking them questions. His parents were upset and couldn't understand why he had stayed behind. Jesus told them, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Joseph and Mary didn't know what he meant. They did not yet fully understand the importance of who Jesus was and all he would do.
born. Have you ever expected something to happen? And it was just silent. Expected instruction. There seemed to be nothing. And maybe some of you are going through that period right now. And asking those questions. Of God, where are you at? Today we're going to be looking at the 400 years of silence in the Old Testament, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, before we get into the birth of Christ, because we definitely want to hit that this morning as well. I don't know if you heard that right, 400 years of silence, 146,000 silent nights. And I know what some of you are thinking, especially with the chaotic world that we live in, especially if you're possibly a parent. Boy, I would sure love a silent night. I know that as parents, it can get very chaotic, and it just seems like we're go, 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 and we just hear noise, noise, noise. And our kids several times, and I know this isn't good parenting, my kids several times have come to me with this complaint or that complaint. Brooks, Brooks called me this, or Avery hit me, and I've told them many times, this is not good. I've told them, I don't care go away. I'm sure that many parents understand that response, even though it's not a good one. I hear, I get an amen for that. And then my wife, Audra, I love my wife. I don't know what I would do without my wife. She is my best friend. There's no one I'd rather talk to than my wife. I way over married, but the girl can talk, all right? I mean, sometimes... 10,000 words is like just warming up for her, all right? That's like noon for her. She loves to talk. I know that many of you have talked to her. Understand, those, understand that, that statement right there. And one of her top things, at home at least, is these honey-do lists, all right? They just go on and on at times. You know, clean up, clean up your, this room or... Pick up your towel, which I should be doing, obviously. You left a crumb in the kitchen. Over and over, I've heard those words. But I'll never forget one time she came down for breakfast, and all of a sudden, she just pointed to her throat, and she said, I can't, I can't talk. I lost my voice. There were a million things running through my head of things I wanted to say that were coming to my mind. I said none of them. I was good. I said none of them. But I did smile. <laughs> I could not help it. I did smile. And uh, Audra did not yell at me, but she did punch me, all right? I don't know, there's a, there's a song by Alison Krauss, uh, when you say nothing at all, you know, her husband gets a song written. I get punched in, in the arm, all right? And sometimes there is silence is good. God says, be still and know that I am God. But there are other times when the silence can be deafening. The silence comes in the midst of struggle or hurt 
and you're only left with questions of God. What do you want me to do? How do you want me to handle this? Who should I turn to? I feel so lost. I feel so lonely. Show me the way, please, God. I feel so trapped. I need your help. I feel so betrayed. I'm so confused. This burden is so heavy. Where are you, God? Have you ever been there? Have you ever experienced those thoughts? I know that you have. See, when we get to Malachi, the last prophet before this 400 years of silence, they have rebuilt the temple and the wall around Jerusalem and things seem to be going good. Malachi shares this prophecy about this coming messenger who will prepare the way for the Lord. In, in Malachi 3.1, he says, I will send my messenger who you will prepare the way before me and then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to this temple and the messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty talking about John the Baptist. But whenever you look at how Malachi closes, you don't have a nation that's in love with God, but you have a, a nation who is in love with idolatry. They don't worship one God, but they worship many gods, and they want to be as much like the world in this heathen world as they can, and they want to live by man's law and not God's law. And again, you see that cycle of, of sin where they sin, and then there comes oppression, and then the people cry out for repentance, and God sends a deliverer, and then there is prosperity that goes back into the land as they serve one God. We see that throughout the Old Testament, but this time, there's 400 years of silence. And what I hope today to accomplish is that you see that God was at work in the hearts of his people over this time, and he was preparing the way for the coming of the Messiah. Because whenever we get to the book of Matthew, you don't find God's people living out of control or in chaos or in idolatry, but rather a people who are worshiping one God and they are out to destroy every hint of idolatry. So what happened? How did we get from Malachi to Matthew and so much, so much change in that 400 years? And where was God and what was he doing during this time? Now, the next few minutes are going to seem more like a history lesson, possibly, than a sermon. But I pray that God speaks to you through these words and brings understanding of where God was at in that 400 years of silence. Hopefully, you will see that God was working this whole time. He was orchestrating that way for that coming Messiah. You see, a only God can story, similar to what we just heard from Mark and Linda Richardson of how God is orchestrating their path, and he is on the move today. And we'll start off, with, first of all, with that ruling authority and where they were at under in Malachi. When we leave Malachi, you, see, you have the Persians who have allowed the Israelites to go back and rebuild Jerusalem, the wall and the temple. But whenever you get to Matthew, you have the Romans ruling. So what happened? Well, the Persians ruled to about 331 B.C., and they had a foreign policy that allowed the Jewish people to get back to their land. Under the, under the Persians, they were able to rebuild Jerusalem. They were able to develop this autonomy, that community once again. The Jewish people were unified. They were scattered, but now they have this sense of locality. Jerusalem is such an important city to the people of Israel. David conquered Jerusalem in 1000 BC, and 40 years later, they built the great temple, and it was completed by Solomon. But Jerusalem is also the most captured city in all of history. 
27 times it was ravished, burned, or destroyed. 27 times in history. Well, eventually, uh, the Greek nation uh, conquered Persia by Alexander the Great. Uh, and, and they ruled until 164 B.C. Under Alexander the Great, they continued to rule themselves. They had autonomy um, under this Greek rule. But as time went on, the leadership becomes more and more anti-Jewish until it comes to this man named Antiochus Epiphanes. And we'll get to him in a little bit. He was an evil man, all right? But under Greek rule, a couple of important things happened. First of all, there was hundreds of languages uh, at this time. But, but with the Greek rule, there became a universal language, and that was the Greek language. It was the language of commerce. It became the predominant language of the day, and the Jewish community, as well as everyone around, began to speak this Greek, uh, Greek language and read it as well. And you were at a distinct disadvantage if you did not know Greek. During this time, about 70 uh, Hebrew scholars got together and they wrote the Old Testament in Greek and they call it the Septuagint, all right? And the Septuagint is still used to this day. That would be such an important, that would be so important because the Jews, uh, because Jesus was sent, according to Luke 4, for this, to proclaim the good news. And there was a common language to proclaim that good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recover sight to the blind, give liberty to those who are oppressed. And I know that when, in Luke 4, whenever Jesus is talking in Judea, they didn't want, to, want him to leave. And Jesus said this to him. He said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God in other towns too, because that is why I was sent. Also during this Greek period, they built these safe and networked road systems that was so important in the, in the spread of the gospel. But the Greek reign did not end well for the Israelite people. The rulers became more and more anti-Jewish until Antiochus Epiphanes stepped into power and was determined to wipe out the Jewish religion altogether. He destroyed all the books of the Old Testament, put them to fire. Anyone that he found, he put them to put them in the fire and destroyed them. The Jews were forbidden to offer sacrifices. They were forbidden to practice the rite of circumcision. They were forbidden to observe the Sabbath or celebrate any of the feast days. And any disobedience to any of these laws that he had was punishable by death. Thousands and thousands and thousands of Jews died under Antiochus Epiphanes. He was an evil man. In the temple, he sent an altar to Zeus, bearing his image. And not only did he do that, but he sprinkled swine blood. He totally desecrated the temple with his swine blood. And Daniel prophesied about this, and he said that for 2,300 days, the temple would be polluted. Six and a half years, the temple would be polluted. And it was under Judas Maccabeus. Uh, Judas Maccabeus and his four brothers would carry out... Um, uh, a rebellion called the Maccabean Rebellion. The Jews would enjoy 100 years of independence from 164 B.C. to 100 or, or to 63 B.C. And they won a series of battles where they were the overwhelming minority and captured Jerusalem, gained their independence, and cleansed the temple. And I love this story because they cleansed, uh, the day they cleansed and rededicated the temple was 
six and a half years after Antiochus desecrated it. And it's known as the Day of Dedication and it occurred on December 25th. The Jews still celebrate it, um, known now as the Festival of Lights or Hanukkah. And what's really important about this time of independence that they got from the Maccabean Rebellion was this, was that they, were, they returned to worship one God. Monotheism, monotheism was the rule among the Jewish people during this time. In Deuteronomy 6, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. They returned to the scriptures. What also is important during this time is this, is that hope is gained. We, see, we, really see, they, we really see God at work, and they really saw God at work as well. There's a new excitement that these prophecies are near for the one they are waiting for. They again are eagerly awaiting the Messiah to come. But through some poor leadership under a civil dispute, they ask Rome to come in and help settle this dispute, and they do by just taking over. And so in 63 BC, Rome takes over. They take over Jerusalem, they take over Israel land, and, um, and there is a time of peace called the Pax Romana, but this peace is mostly because you know, the Roman Empire was just so huge, no one dared uh, try to go up against them. But also important during this Roman uh, time is the expansion of roads. They would network the entire Roman Empire. And both of these are so important to Jesus' cause because Jesus came not for some, but Jesus came for all people. I hope that you believe that. He said to go and make disciples of all nations and the peace in the land and the expansion of roads along with safety on the seas allowed his disciples and Paul to go out and make all those missionary journeys and spread the gospel into the land. The next thing we need to talk about is the Jewish politics of the day. I don't know if it's good to mix religion and politics, but we're going to do it. Hopefully it's safe this morning. Because with the close of Malachi, there is no religious or political parties amongst the Jews but in Matthew, you find a number of opposing political parties. First of all, I, I'm, I imagine that you've heard of this political party, the Pharisees, all right, which simply means separatists. And they were the interpreters of the oral law. They were the legalists of the day. And Jesus had his most scathing words for this group. They were the religious hypocrites of the day, keeping the outward form of the law, but completely ignoring and violating the spirit. There was one group known as, just to give you an idea of who these Pharisees were, there was one group known as the blind and the bleeding Pharisees. I love this story because if they saw a woman coming down the road, they would close their eyes as to not cause or tempt them to lust. But with their eyes closed, they would run into walls, they would fall down steps, and they would trip over rocks. They were the blind and the bleeding Pharisees. And I know that I could probably fit into this, but it was because I kept my eyes too focused on my wife, Audra. She is too beautiful. Uh, Valentine's Day is coming up, all right? I, I, I need to redeem myself here, all right? And uh, you could say I really fell for her. 
ridiculous. All right, the next one is the Sadducees. <laughs> I'm sorry. That was more awkward than, uh, than the beginning of my sermon where I said nothing, wasn't it? All right, the next one, the Sadducees, and they were the righteous ones. They only followed the law or the Pentateuch and would not believe, they did not believe in the supernatural. All right, they were the more official group in the, in the, uh, in the temple. They didn't believe in the angels or the supernatural or life after death. And if you had Sunday school in the 80s like I did, you would know why that's why they were sad, you see. All right. The Herodians, all right, they were the politicians who were pro-Herod and pro-Rome. You can uh, kind of understand that. The Essenes were a group of Jewish people that would totally pull out of society. And probably the Amish would be a, a, uh, a good comparison for that group, the Essenes. The zealots were extremely religious radicals, all right? There was always a slight rebellion going on under the surface. Terrorists would probably be a strong, too strong of a word, but they were willing to do just about anything to overthrow the Roman government at the time. The Sanhedrin was the political council made up of Sadducees that was over all the civil law in the Jewish community. So often there was question as to who had how much power the Sanhedrin had. When Jesus came to trial, was this, was this supposed to be uh, settled in the Sanhedrin or should it be taken to Pontius Pilate? Well, anyways, the political structure was based on their interpretation of the scripture at the time. And it brought great awareness and dedication to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And their faith, again, was at the center of their identity and there was hope. There was hope of a Messiah coming. And just what that Messiah looked like definitely differed among the groups. Next thing I want to talk about is that Jewish faith and prophecy. Because it, when you leave Malachi, many are worshiping pagan gods. There are no synagogues. And there is little or no interest in the Messiah. But whenever you get to Matthew, they are again practicing monotheism, there is a synagogue in every city. In Jerusalem, there is 70 synagogues alone. There is a great interest, and they are eagerly awaiting a Messiah. Kind of the, the center of that worship is, is the temple and the synagogues, but also the Torah school, which we'll talk about. The temple was a more formal and priestly place of worship, a place where you would bring your sacrifices, while the synagogues was a gathering place for teachings and worship. The synagogues were really a model of, for that New Testament Christian church, and they were congregational and not priestly. They were teaching, preaching, and worshiping. The titles of elders and bishops and deacons were all carried over from the synagogue. And then there was the Torah school, or Bet Sefer, House of the Book, where all Jewish boys would not only learn Torah from the ages of 6 to 10, but they would memorize the Torah. 187 chapters, 5,800 verses, can you imagine? My daughter, Avery, had a game against Torah Academy just down the road this past week, and so I caught a couple of the boys and I asked them, do you guys still memorize the Torah? And they're like, no way, that's way too way too much to memorize, which I under, understood. But they still follow some of that orthodoxy. I'll never forget one of the first times we were playing Torah. They told me some of the girls, they, they, won't, they won't touch a guy, all right? They, so afterwards, whenever we have our handshake, they probably, some of them might pull their hand back. And I thought about that, you know, it just went in the back of my mind. And as we were warming up, I thought, 
um, you know, the buzzer sounded, I was going to my bench, and just out of instinct, whenever, you know, one of the kids go by, I always give them a high five, all right? You probably got a high five from me. And I, as the, as the girls from the Torah school were coming by, I went to give this girl a high five, and just as I did, I remembered, oh, they're not allowed to, you know, touch a guy. And so I pulled my hand back, and just as I pulled my hand back, she went up for the high five and just probably thought I was the biggest jerk ever. <laughs> Anyways, I don't know why I shared that. That was not in my notes at all. All right. <laughs> After they memorized the Torah, they kept going. <laughs> uh, some of them would keep going, um, and they would go to the, the second school, it was Bet Midrash, the house of the study, where they would memorize the entire scriptures, 1,261 chapters in all. Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, would have likely gone to Beth Bethsephir and then learned his trade to be a carpenter, while Jesus probably continued on to Bet Midrash, and then they would even study under a rabbi until the age of 30, all right? which makes a lot of sense. All this to say this, that the scriptures and prophecies were on the minds and the hearts of the people. When God seemed to be silent, he was ever-present. He was preparing, he was waiting, he was watching for when the time would be right. And now the people who are searching through scripture for a sign, for a word, God was going to send the word. The splintered nations were now connected with a road system that would provide a way. God sent the way. The Jews were desperate for a mighty king to save them from oppression, so God sent the king of kings. In a dark and lost world, God sent a warning light in the east announcing the coming of the light of the world through the young virgin girl who had nowhere to turn. God would send the hope of the world. And to a disappointed bridegroom named Joseph, God brought the bridegroom. We've just spent 21 weeks, 21 weeks in the Old Testament and it's upon these truths in the Old Testament, upon that word that David was able to his face face that giant, that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had the courage to go into that fiery furnace. It was upon that word that Daniel was able to sleep in the lion's den. It was upon that word that Queen Esther stood up for her people. And now it was upon that word that Zechariah and Elizabeth would have been able to trust that God was sending them a special son that would pave the way for the coming Messiahs Malachi had prophesied about. And it was upon that truth that Mary was able to accept God's word and become his humble servant. She knew the stories of how God gave a miraculous child to Hannah and Sarah. It was upon that word that Joseph risked death several times to be obedient to God. He knew the story of Abraham when it was time to accept his role as father. He knew the story of Moses when God told him to go to Egypt. And now that word would become flesh and make his dwelling among us. It was upon those truths in the Old Testament that they knew it was time for God 
to speak. Galatians 4, 4 and 5 says this, but when the time, but when the set time had fully come, let me say that again, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to the sonship. And it was on a silent night in Bethlehem that God spoke, I have come. And on a dark day, on Calvary, where God spoke, it is finished. And on a bright early morning at the tomb, where God spoke, I am alive. I have risen. And the only question is this, is how is God speaking to you? And are you listening? Is it a still small voice or is he shouting? And are you willing to follow? Are you willing to obey? Are you willing to trust? Are you willing to believe? Never forget sharing with Avery at her devotion time. Our daughter, when she was young, and this can go for every single one of us, but she had a hard time listening at times. And we told Avery over and over again, Avery, so important that you learn to listen. And not necessarily to mom and dad. But Avery, it's important that you learn to listen. Because it just at the right time, God's going to have a special message for you. A special task. Just for you. And if you're not listening, you're going to miss out on so many of God's good things that he has in store for you. So many blessings. So much love. So much joy. Because we weren't listening for his voice. And we weren't willing to obey him. Maybe you are in that time of silence. In 2 Peter 3, it says this, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Wherever you at, wherever you are at, are you willing to allow God to be God? Are you ready to listen? Are you willing to follow? Are you able to let go? Are you ready to put him number one in your life? Are you ready to trust in him? Maybe there's somebody here today that's never put their faith in Jesus Christ and they need to make a decision. They hear God's tugging. Say, now is the time. I don't want to go one more day without him. Maybe there's somebody here where God's whispering or maybe even shouting, I need you to serve. I need you to give. I need you to share. I, 
I want you to be part of this only God can movement. I want you to trust in me and put me first. If that's you, I encourage you, I urge you to come forward. We'd love to talk to you. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to get you on that path that God intended for you to be on. He loves you and he has a great plan for you. Let's pray. God, I thank you again for how you speak to us. And sometimes in small, subtle ways, and other times you shout so loud, it's hard to ignore. And I just pray that we go forward, we keep our eyes and we keep our ears fixed and focused on you. That we allow our hearts to be led by the one and true God. The one who loves us enough to send his son Jesus Christ to this earth. To give his life as a ransom for our sins. To be a sacrifice for us. We thank you so much for that great love. Help us to be a part of what you're doing. We thank you again for how you lead us, how you love us. Now you've given. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're a guest with us today, we want to thank you for worshiping with us. We're grateful for your presence that you chose to worship with us. And we'd love to connect with you more after the service. And in fact, we have a special event going on today after the service for those who are new to East Point or for those who are considering membership called A Taste of East Point. It happens at 1215, just here in a few moments, uh, just out here in the North Foyer. That includes a meal. It's a free meal. It's all free, and it's just a chance for you to hear more about the vision we have for our church, about who we are, and as well as to ask questions. Uh, If you have signed up, that's great. If you have not signed up, that's okay, too. We'd love to have you. We've got plenty of food. Just come join us over here at 1215 uh, in the North Foyer, and we will uh, welcome you in there. Tomorrow evening, we have an event For the Senior Saints, uh, it's a Valentine's Day deal uh, at uh, 6 p.m. So come join us if you're one of the Senior Saints or you'd like to be a part of the Senior Saints. And uh, they'll have a great time uh, tomorrow evening from 6 to 8. Just bring a dish to share. Uh, And finally, uh, we have our FPU class, Financial Peace University, that's going to be starting on Monday, February 28th. This time it's going to be a virtual class. It will be conducted via Zoom. You'll be able to watch the videos on your own time uh, through the passcode that we have for you. Uh, And then after you do that, then you'll meet up once a week for uh, encouragement, accountability, all that good stuff. So you can go to our website and find out more, eastpointchristian.com, and you can uh, click there on the events tab and it will have more information. Normally, FPU is $120. We're able to get it to you for $25. So it's a great savings and a great opportunity to help get your finances in order Uh, in a way that honors God. So uh, check that out if you would. Again, it starts February 28th on Monday evenings, and it's a virtual class. Uh, If you did come today uh, prepared to bring an offering, uh, we do have offering buckets on the way out that you can uh, just place your offering there, or you can also give online at eastpointchristian.com. All right, that's all I have for you today. Let's go ahead and stand together, and uh, let me bless you as we prepare to go. Whether you are in a time where God seems silent or whether you're in a season where he seems to be shouting, 
May you experience his love and may you know that you are God's child, that you are deeply loved, and that he delights in you. God bless you. Go in peace.